Exactly, and, and you know, project. Give it a kiss. I just don't. I don't want to wake up anybody. No, uh, nobody's asleep except my kid, and he like sleeps through fucking everything. Yeah. Except getting a little bit thirsty and wanting a drink of water, so <laughs> okay. we're okay. I'll try not to yell too loudly, but <laughs> okay. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back for another episode of Unbalanced MN. The show where we try to answer the question, just what in the fuck is going on on the far right? I'm Miles Bragg, a community defense activist, and I'm joined by all-star journalist Logan Carroll. Yeah. How you doing today, Logan? I'm feeling like an all-star today. Yeah? Um, yeah. Just feeling better. I think I think it's actually less to do with my profession and more to do with like the sun being out for more than you know three hours a day. I'm oh feeling my good gosh, about right? that. That's oh, definitely man. a thing. I think I think I'm just gonna blame this huge delay from last episode to this one. It's just Sad's fault. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that's that is a thing though. I mean everyone talks about it jokingly as like, oh, I have seasonal affective disorder. It's like when you don't see the sun for months out oh of the God. year, it does something to you. I don't care what you call it. You call it sad. Mm-hmm. You call it mad. You call it whatever acronym you want to slap on there. It sucks. I'm I'm taking my vitamin D too. Like this is I I learned that a few years ago that if I take vitamin D, like I don't think about the heat death of the universe nearly so much in the winter. That's good. I should probably get back on that then. Highly but recommend vitamin it. D is a good idea. All right. This week we are starting our two part series detailing the life and exploits of one Mr. Bronze Age pervert, aka Kostin Alamaru. This episode has been like on my mind for a long time. Um mm-hmm. I've been working on it for like two years now, off and on, not full time or anything like that. I've just been so excited to to dig into it. But this also means that like I have a lot to say on the issue. So we're breaking it into a two-part episode to talk about Costine Almaru. This first part's just gonna be about his biography. Like who is Costine? And, you know, where did Bronze Age Pervert come from? Just focusing on his biography in the first part. And the second part. Is it going to be about like looking at his ideas and his projects a little bit more? I'm a little worried though because it means we talk about this guy for an hour and we say some complimentary things about him and we don't talk about his racism and his misogyny. I'm not pushing back on any of his like more reprehensible ideas. We right. mention them, we allude to them, and I think we do a good job of like making it clear that like he's a gross person in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, we're not co-signing any of this. Oh God, no, 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 no. We're just kind of taking it for granted that this stuff is obvious. I think we say it up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just trying to say it a little bit more clearly now. I kind of intentionally wanted it to fall away a little bit and talk about him on his own terms. But like, also, it is a problem. <laughs> right. You need to understand the appeal to understand how someone like this becomes so prominent in such a movement. Yeah. What are they offering their audience? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why I think it was the right approach. But also, this is one of the weaknesses of this approach. Well, I'll <laughs> so just say, I, 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 I'm appreciative because this guy's been on my radar for a while, but until you kind of zeroed in on him for me, with me, I didn't really understand the significance of his writing. So yeah. hopefully we can impart that to the listener. 
Yeah, because Bronze Age pervert is, he's the most prominent fascist academic in, in a generation at least. Mm. And his appeal is like shockingly wide. I mean, we talk about the Minnesota State Senators into him. That's like a good one to highlight. Um, the Claremont Review of Books. It's, it's very right wing. It's about as right wing as you get in academia. And they've published him. Mm-hmm. Powerline blog here has talked about him. Like he's he's getting around. Yep. He's read by young conservatives and he's read by intellectual conservatives. Mm-hmm. And no, he's not making significant inroads into the rank and file of like the GOP or anything like that. I don't believe that, except for maybe some of the kids. One of the themes we want to develop is like his appeal to disaffected young white men, which I think young white cisgendered straight men specifically though not exclusively absolutely yeah um because there is a lot of writing about his man he's got a big appeal amongst young men of color as well and he does have weird ideas about race that do not map really greatly onto the way that we usually talk about racism Mm -hmm. though they're definitely racist also they just just they're just weird yeah and he represents so many of these things that, about like trying to figure out what the fuck is happening on the right wing in America today and whether he precedes them or he's expressing them or if he's just like a shit poster having fun by glomming on to something and then he just proceeds to produce shit that he thinks they like. It's, it's probably a bit of all three of those. Right. He's going to exert a particular influence that's going to be felt for a long time, both amongst like street level fascists and in um, the more authoritarian mainstream right. And I think you're right. we're going to be feeling his influence for a long time. I think if you were to study his writings, I think you would have some clue about how to push back on even the mainstream right. He's a brilliant and deep thinker in a lot of ways, hmm. who is also deeply, deeply misogynist, deeply, deeply trans, transphobic, although um, that doesn't really, I feel like, capture the aggression that he expresses right. yeah. towards trans people. But we need to talk about it, so <laughs> we're going to. Oh, yeah, we'll get um, into it. And we're going to, yeah, okay. This has been, thanks for letting me rant for a little bit, um, like I said. <laughs> it's okay. We spend a lot of time on these episodes, so we hope that if you like it, you'll go and follow us on Twitter, subscribe to our Patreon, or just give us some feedback. Let us know if you loved it, hated it, what we got right or wrong or whatever. And also, we want to know, dear listener, what do you want to see in more episodes? Do you want more episodes like this? Do you have an idea for a particular episode? Hit us up. We're trying to do this audience engagement thing, uh, trying to get get better at it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank been getting distracted by that heat death of the universe but uh need to get back to it so before we get started on our analysis of the pervert maybe it would be worth it to dive into some of these headlines what do you think yeah i think i'm ready all right One hand and a pistol in the next She led the fight for freedom with a 
get to the news the first headline obviously is the biggest news of the last week or month or year or so that is russia heavily shells ukraine launches full-scale invasion obviously this is a bigger story than we would normally discuss here in our new segment it's deeply complex and complicated and its historical roots reach back hundreds of years easily but we wanted to discuss specifically the elements of fascism that are involved in this conflict on the ground and maybe unpack a little bit of the discourse that is taking place both on the left and just in the U.S. in general. I'll totally preface this news piece by saying that it's mostly me just giving my opinion about the developments in Ukraine right now. A lot of discussion these last several weeks has included pieces about the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is named after the Sea of Azov, it started as a civilian militia during the 2014 Maidan conflict and quickly became known for its far-right politics and anti-Semitism and its use of torture and war crimes. Now, these are some bad dudes. They were incorporated officially into the Ukrainian National Guard later in 2014 and technically are still part of it. They're fighting in this conflict too, unfortunately, and the bastards are still around. Though from my understanding, it seems as though their numbers have peaked at around 2,500 in 2017 or so. Their influence has been waning since. There's also the Zvoboda and the right sector, which are the far-right political parties in Ukraine, who altogether polled between 2-3% to of the vote in the 2019 parliamentary elections. Being charitable between these three organizations, we've got maybe 50,000 people out of a population of like 44 million. Uh -huh. But then in Russia, we've got this dude, Vladimir Putin. You've heard of him? By all accounts, this guy is an autocrat and a gangster capitalist who has inarguably looted mountains of wealth from his own people, cracked down on any challenges from the media, and consolidated his own power over the course of decades now. Probably, probably seized power by orchestrating, like, honest-to-God actual false flag attacks against Russian civilians. Right, the apartment to, bombings, right? The apartment bombings, which he blamed, which were blamed on the Chechens and yep. eventually led to his taking control in Russia. Right. Well, Putin is almost 70 at this point, and he's been dealing with many challenges domestically even before this whole thing started. Many writers have surmised about him perhaps feeling worried about his political leg legacy. Even more have written about the existential threat to him posed by NATO in the West. And while I think both of these are logical on paper, I think the reason as to why Putin has decided to launch a full-scale invasion, at least so far, have a lot more to deal with what we could simply describe as imperialism. Imperialism is defined as a policy or ideology of extending rule over peoples and other countries for extending political and economic access, power, and control. I think many folks I know would read the definition of imperialism and would quick, quickly realize that the United States is undeniably an imperialist power. We could look at Iraq and Afghanistan as imperial projects, or Vietnam, but this gets to the issue that I've been dealing with the last week or so, 
I think that definition above that I just read could also apply to the former Soviet Union. And I think that there's many a Western lefty that kind of have these rose-colored glasses on about the former Soviet Union, maybe. And sometimes these anti-war types, even, who think that we should only criticize our own government. That we shouldn't be able to talk about other governments and, and their imperial actions. Well, I would disagree. I'd go so far as to say that many of those people wouldn't even know the history of the Russian Empire, how vast it was in terms of geographic area, but also how long of a period of time that encompassed. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be the one to be able to break that all down here, but I think it's worth pointing out that the Russians also employ a large fascist paramilitary group known as the Wagner Group. These dipshit assholes have been deployed in places like Mali and Syria and now Ukraine specifically to carry out the foreign policy objectives of the Kremlin. And I'll bring them up just to say that there's fascists on all sides, even though that is true. But I say it so hopefully that you, the audience, will understand that nationalism is a tool that is cultivated and tailored to fit the needs of any ruling or political class. Sometimes those aims can be good, like defending peoples or a land from being exploited or captured. Sometimes nationalism is employed to destroy peoples or their lands. The use of nationalism, but particularly ultra-nationalism in times of war and conflict, is an age-old issue. As long as there's been nations and states, there have been people projecting their identities onto them and fighting and dying for them, sometimes even waging genocide as a way to stamp out their supposed opponents and their beliefs. Now, personally, I identify as an anarchist, spoiler alert, and I don't necessarily care for the idea of nations or states, but, and this is a giant caveat, I also recognize that as an anarchist based in so-called America, that I don't have the right to tell anyone anywhere how to define their nationality or tell them what defines their nation. This is also known as the right to self-determination. Historically speaking, Ukraine is a very young nation, officially constituted after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. But its history and peoples and customs, again, reach back centuries. Now, this doesn't mean that I'm excusing far-right ideology in Ukraine. In fact, just the opposite. I condemn it. But many arguments I've been seeing lately are essentializing and overstating the problem with Ukrainian fascism. I've seen people quite literally saying, quote, The U.S., of course, is funding and defending its Nazi little brother. Which, to me, is quite offensive. Uh, Ukrainians fought against Hitler's Nazis. Millions of Ukrainians were also starved to death in what is known as the Holodomor, which took place under the Stalin regime. Ukrainians' relationship with nationalism is complicated, and unhelped by those in the West who use a broad brush to paint everything with. So, what would be the correct position to take? In my opinion, it would be one that is opposed to the war, but also recognizes and respects the rights of the Ukrainian people to defend themselves against a larger imperial power. Ukrainians are not pawns of NATO and Western powers, and I think that any assertion to that point should be refuted. And while NATO and Western nations are not without criticism here, to focus on them solely would be missing the point and would be missing. Putin's aggression. Those on the left, especially those who find many socialist aims worth aspiring towards, need to be intellectually honest about the history of the Soviet Union and how it informs the current conflict in Ukraine. 
For more on this issue specifically, Atlanta anti-fascists put out a video presentation titled War in Ukraine? Where are the fascists? And I highly recommend everyone go and watch that. Logan here. I just wanted to clarify one little thing. Uh, Miles compared the Azov group in Ukraine to the Wagner group in Russia. The Azov group is actually like a street-level political party, like far-right, um, that was incorporated into the Ukrainian military. But the Wagner group is a sort of private military, military contractor group based in Russia. They don't seem to have uh, any individual politics. Basically, what I'm saying is I wouldn't call them fascist, but uh, – it's pretty much in line with how Miles talks about fascism, and we've talked about how we use that word differently. So it's all good. Do you have any thoughts on the, the Ukrainian or the Russian fascist issue? Like, first off, I didn't hear anything you said that I disagreed with, but I've actually been really unplugged from this issue. There's something else I did want to comment. I do Reddit, mm-hmm. and I noticed that the... Reddit, our Russia subreddit, had been quarantined for misinformation. Um, I assumed just like, yeah, sure, just like a den of like Russian spam bots. And I, I read it and it like, it certainly is. Something that's interesting though is the, the messages are like almost exclusively targeted to like right-wingers. Interesting. They're using racist meme templates that have been edited to like take away the racial context. But using this, like, language of the far right, here's a post, uh, I haven't even read the underlying article they're linking to, but the headline is, you know it's bad when even the woke Western media calls out Ukraine. I don't really understand what it's saying, but it's hitting all, like, the emotional beats of right-wing American far right propaganda. You know, the woke Western media. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the Russian media apparatus is very interested in... The meme game, they're in the social movements, they've got news stations, they they're they are everywhere, you know? And here's one more that like perfectly illustrates it. It's like the post is a fake Netflix movie poster about the ghost of Kiev. Do you hear that? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> no. Oh, I, d- I did hear that that, that story, yeah. Yeah, so that but it's like it's that. But the ghost of Kiev is a black woman and the headline is he is also transgender in all caps. Well, the far right has been like memeing about how Putin's army is the big, strong, manly army, and then the Ukrainian army is the they, them, rainbow yeah. coalition kind well, of shit. What I'm getting at is in our last season, you did a news story about a uh, French fascist who died and donated a shit ton of Bitcoin mm-hmm. to like fascists around the globe, yep. like the Proud Boys, um, Fuentes. Mm-hmm. And I remember like commenting something about like, it's like this international nationalism and I don't know what to make of it really. But like, like we're seeing that again. We're seeing this sort of internationalism of the far right. Yep. Um, 100%. I mean, they're, they're, they're watching each other around the world to see how each grouping or region yes. responds under different circumstances I mean, and they adopt what works and then they discard what doesn't. I mean, I hate to bring it back to Bronze Age pervert. Mm-hmm. But he is thrilled about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, I'm he, sure. he, he has been pro-Putin for a long time, really praises up Putin as like a strong man. And he's just like all about this invasion. It's this internationalism of the far right that's like really on display right now. I still don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah. I don't either exactly, but I just know it's got to be stopped, you know. Then we had one more other news item. 
we wanted to give you a brief update on Patriot Front. Headline is, Patriot Front infiltrated, exposed, suffers L after L as a result. (laughs) Can you tell I wrote that headline, not like the New York Times or something like that? No, I couldn't. I just, I just like got lost in my appreciation for it. It was a great headline. (laughs) Oh, I I don't editorialize as much, but I like doing it with the headline. So we got Patriot Front. Recently, they have defaced the Hmong Cultural Center in St. Paul. They marched alongside conservatives at the anti-abortion March for Life rally in Chicago and installed a literal fasces monument in New Mexico. Busy guys. Pure class. Yeah, the definition of it. This was up until a few months ago when they were infiltrated by some daring anti-fascists who mapped out their entire organizational structure and modus operandi. I'm just imagining like spy kids equipment, just like cartwheeling (laughs) through a narrow window. (laughs) They captured over 400 gigabytes of data and sent it to Unicorn Riot and DDoS secrets. We got internal meeting notes, maps, raw video footage, and internal messaging channels were a part of the enormous leak. We learned that not only are these fascist patriot losers organizing propaganda campaigns, but they're also organizing hate crimes and felonious vandalism, in addition to deliberately recruiting teenagers into their ranks. We talked to that Jeff Scoop. He talked about that was a core tactic mm-hmm. of the uh, National Socialist Movement yeah. 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Yeah, it's definitely a page out of the classic playbook. I mean, we st- I st- still get updates, you know, monthly of different Patriot Front stickers being spotted in different places, and a lot of times it's near schools. Yeah, I talked to somebody up in Vadness Heights who said that, and that's a hot spot. For those who don't know, Patriot Front is a neo-Nazi organization fronted by a young guy named Thomas Rousseau. They were formerly known as Vanguard America, but after one of their members, James Alex Fields, committed vehicular murder at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, I guess they thought they should change their name for some reason. (laughs) Weird. Uh, Ever since the infiltration and publication of all that data, there's been a lot of stuff happening in the Patriot Front world. Thousands of dollars worth of propaganda materials were captured from Patriot Front and burned, many times publicly. Their suburban Texas headquarters location has been revealed, once again by anti-fascists. Subsequent doxing and flyering of the fascist neighborhoods and workplaces has happened as a result. And while it doesn't appear that Patriot Front or their buddies in the Proud Boys are going away anytime soon, actions like these ones do have an effect on their ability to organize. Anti-fascists have been leading the way in calling out the threat of fascism in America and are many times the first ones to put their bodies on the line in order to stop it. They do so without support from mainstream media or political parties, and to me, that is awesome. We need more of it. If you're looking for more information on this story, I suggest looking at the Unicorn Riot or DDoS Secrets articles that have been put out, as well as uh, checking out RoseCityAntifa.org to see a detailed list of all the Patriot Front members ID'd thus far. I just want to say that I like... Cannot endorse what I can only interpret to be your calling for radical left-wing terrorism. That is absolutely not what I'm saying, Logan. Ah! No, lowercase antifa, okay? Lowercase. <laughs> lowercase, that's right. The ones who do the sexy posters, not the... Uh, yeah, don't, don't conflate. 70s German terrorists. No, no, no. We joke, but I mean, that is just like... That's just such a caricature of, like, everyone that I know in this movement. The people that I know that are anti-fascists, 
they're middle-aged. Most of them are older than me. They've been doing this stuff long time. Some of them are younger than me and they're very like gung-ho and militant and they're ready to fight and fuck things up sometimes. But like, it's usually the older generation that is like, calm down, young one, you know, steady or quiver, you know, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Lord of the Rings stuff. But like, you need to, there is a seriousness to, the, to this. And I think like the basic inclination is a good one, is a just one towards mm -hmm. trying to defend your neighborhood, trying to defend your workplace. This is really embarrassing to admit, but I finally got around to reading uh, David Renton's New Authoritarians, that book. Mm. Uh, Renton was the Marxist fascism scholar we talked to mm -hmm. at the beginning of last season. He talks about this New Authoritarian movement in France, Great Britain, and the US especially, though not exclusively, um, and does a really good job of explaining why they're not fascist, actually. Mm. He talks about like anti-Semitism and the important role that anti-Semitism played in the fascist worldview mm -hmm. because it created this enemy that could be both this superpower that was crushing them and a horrible inhuman monster that was warming from below. Like, like It's just this completely incomprehensible nonsense idea yeah. of a people. And when you look at this movement, where they've directed their like racist anger is predominantly on Muslims and immigrants. And yeah, LGBTQ increasingly, yeah. But these people are obviously weak. Yeah, um, some of the most powerless in our society, I guess you'd yeah, say. Yeah, and so, so like this, it, it's missing that other part of that formula that fascism needed this like idea of like this power that's like crushing from above and below at the same time right but one of the things renton gets to is he says like they could find like new ways to make up those gaps in which case they'd be they, they'd be different than fascists but they'd still be really bad and it occurs to me that like what he's describing is the schrodinger's antifa mm -hmm. <laughs> that like we're like this like <laughs> global we, I'm not really even. Oh no, you gave up your membership right there. <laughs> the royal we. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We won. Um, but that <clears throat> we on the left are like just this global sneaky force that's being centrally controlled mm -hmm. by George Soros. That bit of classic anti-Semitism sneaking into the story is not a mistake. For sure. Um. At the same time, we're just these like dregs of society, like yeah, mindless automatons living in our mama's basement types. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. I, I joke about Antifa, but like also. Well, I mean, any, anything to be able to justify their use of violence against us, you know, they will do anything and everything. This is why there's guys like Andy No out there. You know what I mean? Fucking no. Yeah. But yeah, that's it for the news. Is that from the news? Oh, you, the one thing, though, about the Patriot Front story that uh, you didn't mention was my favorite part of the story about how the leaks revealed that uh, Rousseau, like, you know, every member had, like, a checklist of a certain number of official actions they had to complete to, like, maintain their membership. And most of those actions required them to buy, like, official stickers and stencils from the leader himself, Rousseau. Yeah. I mean, it was just... Part of the group was just him scamming all oh, these members. 100%. And some of them even remark at that. That's why like people really need to follow up and look at some oh, of these articles that have been published. Love that detail. Shall That's we? That's it for the news. Shall we get a little 
Perverted? Let's get a little perverted. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. Secretly, this episode is just like a wall-to-wall strain of like Mike Myers impersonations. <laughs> I actually enjoy Mike Myers. I know that makes me cringe, but well, little little known fact that this actually makes it the second episode in a row. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this tonight. Um, <laughs> it's been a long time in coming. A long time coming. I don't know if you know this, but subject of our show tonight, mm-hmm. Bronze Age Pervert, first of two parts. Burr, 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 burr. We're going deep. We're going deep. You have never heard such a deep analysis of Bronze Age Pervert, nor one so informed, educated, and intelligent, <laughs> except actually Michael Anton who I would typically describe as like a right-wing fuckwad, mm-hmm. actually has like a really solid critique of Bronze Age Pervert up on the Claremont Review of Books, mm-hmm. which I don't agree with everything. You're going to have critiques of it too. Sounds juicy. Juicy. It's juicy. We'll get into it more next episode. We don't even need to talk about that. But okay. Bronze Age Pervert actually inspired me to start this iteration of the podcast, to get it started again. Actually, this is like way too much. I don't need to go into this. Do it. Do it. You can cut it away later. Sure. Okay. Um, I want to hear it. So I was working on the first season, uh, which was mostly an excuse for me to learn audio editing and to cyberstock the Freedom Club, see, <laughs> yeah. season two, episode four. Um, <laughs> but I was pouring through the archives of Powerline, which is the blog that's run by several men, including John Hinderocker, who's president and CEO, Center of the American Experiment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I started listening to an episode of the Powerline podcast, where another one of the dudes who runs that, a guy named Steve Hayward, is interviewing Michael Anton mm-hmm. about Bronze Age Pervert. Okay. And it didn't mean anything to me. I just breezed past it. But fast forward a couple months, and it's the spring of 2020, and Patrick Kulikan over at the Minnesota Reformer asked me to look into Minnesota State Senator Roger Chamberlain's curious Twitter flirtations with a weird author named Bronze Age Pervert. And this author's book, Bronze Age Mindset. He included uh, a handful of screen grabs of pages of the book um, that, with just like overtly racist passages highlighted. Mm-hmm. Um, I fig- the spicy stuff. The spicy stuff. Um, I figured I should at least read the book to contextualize the racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. And da, 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 da. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. I want to like context. Oh, context yeah, is important. When I say like how much I like Bronze Age Pervert, um, there's a huge caveat to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge. Several huge about the everything. <laughs> but um, so I read it, and it was really clear that there's more to this book than it's just this simple, casually offensive shit that's all over it. Right. Um, there's one line in particular that stood out to me, and it goes, quote, 
Life appears at its peak, not in the grass hut village ruled by nutso mammies, but in the military state, end quote. Um, now, I'm a white dude. Mm-hmm. It's really easy for me to abstract the racism and sexism right. of that passage. Um, and I, I think there is some value in being able to do that, um, so long as in certain contexts. Right. Um, in this case, you know, just a lone asshole doing a racism, who the fuck cares? Sure. But here's a guy who's really popular, popular with a sitting elected official who has some power over our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's not just doing racism and sexism, but doing it in the context of praising a military state. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember thinking that, like, oh, like I think this is fascism. Right. <laughs> so then I started this podcast, right? Mm-hmm. I tell you that story because, and I like, this is hard to explain, but this is like really the idea I want to communicate with these next couple episodes. Um, and I think I get, I'll pull it off. But that Colstein Almaru, AKA Bronze Age pervert, is one of my greatest influences and inspirations politically and artistically, um, and is directly responsible for this podcast. <sighs> yeah. I'm, all right. That, that I'm going to let not, that hang out there. I'm going to let you explain yourself. Oh, thank you. Well, we got two episodes to do it. You got all the time in the world. Okay. I'm really excited about it. Um, so before we dig into it, uh, we've got some housekeeping, which is like, how do we know that Costine is Bronze Age pervert? This is the first big thing we got to deal with. And I'm just going to deal Fair. with it up front. And then I'm just going to take it for granted. Good idea. Um, so there's like a couple of ways. Uh, first is and the most substantial is that when you subscribe to Bronze Age Perverts podcast, a string of letters appears on your bank statement. It's uh, C-O-S-T-I-N space A-L-A space B-R-O-N. Hmm. I wrote to the platform that hosts this fucking fascist mm-hmm. um, and doesn't really seem to care that they do. It's called Gum Road. I don't know. I'm, I haven't heard of that one. Oh, well, they host a fascist. God damn. Um, <laughs> probably ain't the only one either. Yeah, probably not. But they confirmed that that Costin A-L-A... Um, was part of the host's name. They okay. would not. They ignored me when I asked them if it was if the full name was Costine Maru, but um, they confirmed that. Oh. Second, we have audio recordings of both of them. Okay. Um, here is Costine asking Bill Crystal, that's the uh, the neocon, not the comedian, uh, a question at a post mortem of the 2016 election. We called them know nothings, and I wonder uh, why uh, the people who did predict that Trump uh, or somebody like Trump would win, uh, based this on the view that mass immigration, mass third world immigration was the animating issue of our time and why you missed that, whether it's because of your worldview in general or contempt for the white uh, working class or <laughs> other issues. So, A, I mean, the data show, for whatever it's worth. I mean, I... Just, just really focusing on the, uh, the voice for now. Because this is... Bronze Age Pervert. And now, from 50 miles offshore, welcome to Caribbean Rhythms with Bronze Age Pervert. Uh, this is uh, my show. He has a very distinguished voice. Oh, check this out, too. Let me find the exact. He's one of his former classmates from Yale, describing his accent. Uh, that is, uh, I don't know if he's Russian or a former Soviet bloc satellite state, but uh, his accent seemed to vary sometimes in thickness. He seemed to sometimes be putting on kind of an act with his accent. 
The animating question was mass immigration. Did Antarctica have natives and what they look like? It's not, if I'm being brutally honest, it, I would not call it a perfectly watertight caves, but it's certainly fucking seaworthy, right? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> right? I'm comfortable. Right, me too. So we should, let's just jump into it then, huh? Yeah. Um, okay, so, Constantine Almaru was born May 21st, 1980 in Bucharest, Romania, to Bernard André and Aurelia Almaru. Costine is sort of like a diminutive of gotcha. Constantine. Um, he also has an older brother, Dan, who we'll talk about briefly. Um, at this time period, Romania in the 1980s, the country was ruled by the communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. Mm. Spew Ceausescu. <laughs> oh, yeah. There it is. There it is. Subtle one. Now, there's not a ton of information about this period of Costine's life. Um, neither he nor anyone in his family responded to requests for interviews. Uh, but there's a book called The Brilliant and like Really Invigorating Name, Special Focus on Transition Economies, Romania, um, that lists a young electrical engineer named André Almaru as joining the Research Institute for Electronic Components in Bucharest in the mid-'80s. Costine's father is an electrical engineer at uh, MIT. Got so, it. So, like, it's probably him. Sure. Um, this book describes the situation in Romania at the time period of the mid-'80s as, quote, living conditions became unbearable, shortages of basic food and other products, endless queues from shops, terrible cold in the houses and in public transport, scheduled or unplanned power cuts, and so on, end quote. Um, we can kind of imagine what it was like to be a child in this environment, uh, but to flesh it out a little bit, uh, last year I interviewed a woman named Eugenia Popa, uh, who was a candidate for the Minnesota Teacher of the Year, she taught elementary school in Bucharest from 1982 until about 19, 1990, um, which is the exact period when Kostin would have been in elementary school in Bucharest. Wow. Um, and she talked about that experience. Um, okay. Yep. I started teaching very, very early um, in Romania. So I was 18 when I had my first my first classroom because the system um, was was different at that time. So I was an elementary teacher uh, for uh, eight years. So you were actually teaching then during the, the fall of the Ceausescu regime? Oh, yeah. This is a selection from the piece I wrote about her for Sahan Journal. Quote, Popa graduated in 1982 from a special high school in Bucharest, the capital of Romania, where she studied education. At just 18, she was put in charge of an elementary school classroom while she enrolled at the University of Bucharest to study the Romanian and English languages. And on, on our uniforms, we had to display, like, we, we had numbers. So each student, we had an, uh, an, an emblem that our parents had to, to sew on our uniforms with our number, just in case. So the name of our school and, um, or the number of our school and our specific number. Um, if we did something bad, let's say displayed uh, some unruly behavior in the street or, you know, anybody could report us. As a teacher, Popa's curriculum was written by the Communist Party of Romania and taught under Ceausescu's gaze. The dictator's picture hung in every classroom, and party officials regularly observed classes. It was a national curriculum, a prescribed curriculum. Uh, everything was standardized. In everything that we taught, we had to insert um, party.
party's documents. We had in every classroom, we had the picture of Ceausescu. Um, there were people from the party who would come to to observe and they didn't care much about what we would teach because hey they had no clue yeah. <laughs> about the content uh they were more worried not to tell anything that was against the regime you know to the to the students and uh of course to display the paraphernalia the communist you know propaganda make sure yeah. that is displayed and um that is, uh, like I said, incorporated in our in our lessons. Throughout the 80s, poverty, malnutrition, and infant mortality rates skyrocketed. It was tough. It was it was really tough um, because we had no no freedoms of speech. You know, access to information was very very limited. Because hey, why would we learn about what was going on yeah. in other parts of the world? And um, God forbid you would say anything against the regime or you couldn't protest, you couldn't. So um, no freedom at all. It was a dictatorship. It was the government told us what to do. In 1989, with change sweeping across communist Eastern Europe, the anger at Ceausescu reached a tipping point. Several days of anarchy ended with the capture and execution of the dictator and his wife. Literally, he was tried by the provisional government in somebody's kitchen, and then they took him into the backyard and shot him. Yo. Fucking metal. That is wild <laughs> stuff. Um, and turmoil in the country continued. Economic reforms instituted in 1981 meant more austerity. Government-owned assets were sold to investors, wages plummeted, and social spending was cut. Unemployment and poverty rose. It's worth pointing to something that got cut from my Sahan piece because it was about the Minnesota Teacher of the Year and not historical geopolitics was that a lot of the austerity measures that Ceausescu instituted was because he got a loan from the IMF. Mm. This was... That's fascinating Neoliberalism. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. What you and I would call neoliberalism. We're going to talk about that more in the next episode. Sure. I mean, not unlike what else happened during post-Soviet times. Yeah. You know what I mean? In other states. Yeah, that, that's the shock doctrine. So it's easy to write off Bronze Age pervert as like this wacky racist, um, but I really want to stress up front that Kostin is a legitimately profound thinker in many ways, and he's drawing on legitimately profound experiences, including living for nearly a decade under a despotic left-wing regime. Though, as we'll see, and I really want to stress this too, the picture is not nearly as simple as he became a fascist because he was reacting to communism. Right. Um, in fact, there's a little evidence, not a ton, but a little we'll look at in the next episode, that rather than being put off by the Ceausescu regime, he was inspired by it, at least in some ways. Mm. Kostin's author bio on the far-right website, Talkies Mag, for which he would later write a couple of articles, says he immigrated to the U.S. from Romania when he was 10, so in 1990 or 1991. The family eventually settled in Newton, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston, close to MIT, where his father had become a research engineer, like a experimental electronics engineer. So his older brother, Dan Alamaru, is very conventionally successful. He like patented a method of securitizing political risk. Um, he's been executive director and the head of the U.S. country risk for the global investment firm UBS. Stuff Whoa. like that. Here's another interesting thing about his brother that I love. Um, have you ever heard of the, like, every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten? Would have been big when we were in... I've heard that. When you were in, like, middle school, probably? Yeah, I don't know how true it is. That originated on the cover of a student magazine at Georgetown University in 1996. 
You're that was managed by Dan Alamore. I was going to say, you tell me this guy has something to do with Bronze Age pervert's brother probably invented every time you masturbate, God kills a kitten. Oh, wow. Dude, dude, that's just the beginnings. We haven't even gotten to Jim from the office yet. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, it's coming up, though, uh, pretty quick. This paragraph, even. Um, Costine went to high school at Newton South High. Go Lions. Uh, <laughs> And this is one of my favorite parts, too. It's something that's really funny. His junior year, he was the opinion editor of the school newspaper, The Roar. The Roar. Go Lions. Mm-hmm. Roar. <laughs> While the editor-in-chief was B.J. Novak. Oh, my God. A.K.A. Ryan from The Office. Um, yep. Another one of their fellow classmates who wasn't in the newspaper was Jim from The Office. He was there, but um, Jim and Ryan graduated the year before Baby Pervert. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Coasting graduated from high school in 1998, and his senior yearbook, which is scanned into the Internet Archive in its entirety, is simply amazing. He became the managing editor of The Roar, uh, and there's this great passage from the page about the newspaper. Quote, The Roar is 100% student-produced. From the simplest news article to broad editorial decisions, we do it all ourselves. We love this tradition because it lets us be wacky, zany, clever, or serious. Where else could you find crazy focus topics? Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> a student showcase, a look into the tracking system, and, emphasis in the original, a centerfold on 19th century German philosophers. End quote. Hmm. That's kind of a weird thing to slip in there, don't you think? Yeah. I'm just, like, imagining. Like, I wasn't able to get a copy of that centerfold, um, <laughs> unfortunately, but I'm just imagining, like, Nietzsche just full Very rare. Yeah. Like, beard down to here, you know? Yeah. Maybe Schopenhauer pinching in <laughs> topless. That's what I like to imagine. I can't get that image out of my head, no. Well, I mean, that's how that's how you get red-pilled, man. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you get red-pilled. Um, uh, some other gems from the yearbook. Uh, his senior photo is stiff as fuck. What do you mean? I mean, he looks like a TA. He doesn't okay. look like a student. Got he's um, He's got like a suit jacket and a tie, and he's standing. His hair is cut super close. Yeah. There's just something about him. He just... Straight laced. Yeah, extremely. And wow, his tight. senior quote appears to be a passage, a nonsense passage lifted from one of his father's research papers. It reads in part, wow. quote, For resonant polysilicon microbridge vapor sensor... If there's a large amount of reverse diode leakage, the P region can passivate prior to reaching the end region, and so on and so on and so on. Mm. So, yeah. Um, there's one more photo from the yearbook <laughs> I want to talk about. Um, it doesn't have his name attached. Uh, it's at the front of the book. There's a section where there's like photos of student life, and they've all got like each page has like a what part of student life it's from. Yeah. Sports, pep rallies, outdoor activities, senior skip day, what have you. Yeah. And it's just pictures of students. And there's one that I am not 100% sure it's him, um, but I think it is. It's a photo of a guy wearing this just like heavily textured 70s shirt with a big collar that like just flares way out and it's unbuttoned to like just above his nipples. And he's wearing like a ridiculous plaid tweed jacket and sunglasses and a giant blonde clown wig. This is what year we're talking about? 98. 98. And the caption reads... Brother, get out of here. Oh, the caption reads, Excuse me, but I think you're wearing my underwear. Oh, my God. And the page it's on... So he's a cheese ball too. Dances. Mm. This is how he turned up to dances his senior year. Oh, yeah. I bet he was just the hottest commodity at that school. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not 100% sure it's him, 
but that is 100% that same like anxious overwrought pervert energy right um and these are just snapshots but i think we have a good sense of who he was going into college in 1998 Mm -hmm. um he started by getting a bachelor's of math from mit an acquaintance of his from later in life told me that uh said he studied math before philosophy because that's what plato recommended um interesting yeah one of his mit at mit he's there where his dad taught okay so now, one of his earliest writings is from his time there at MIT. In 2000, there's a rant about limousine liberals in the school newspaper that includes an interesting line directed at a previous letter writer, quote, For God's sake, keep your engineering minds away from political and social problems. <laughs> um, which is sort of prefigures his later rejection of rationality. Sure. And is sort of like a crazy persona. Which again, we'll, we'll talk about some of those big ideas in the next episode. Just focusing on biology for now, or biography for now. I don't want to know about that's, his biology. That's not, yeah. That's Probably a lot similar to mine. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So after this, after uh, his time at MIT, he went to Columbia to study philosophy, get his master's in something related to philosophy. Uh, There's a 2005 letter to the campus newspaper from this time period where he defended a Harvard professor who, quote, raised some very reserved questions to a private body of faculty about whether there might be innate differences between men and women in their intellectual abilities and preferences, Mm. end quote. Sure. Elmaru further characterizes the incident as, quote, legitimate intellectual questioning, end quote. So we're starting... Sounds like being a fucking edgelord. Yes, that's a major part of who he is. Just asking questions. Right. But we're starting to see like an arc to his thought and his philosophy. He goes from centerfold on 18th century German philosophers. I I assume that means Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Those are the ones he writes about all the time. Sure. Um, To him like bitching about limousine liberals, Mm -hmm. which, hey, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. To softly questioning whether women are inherently inferior to men. Right. Starts with, you know, kind of like youthful contrarianism and ends up in, uh, you know, crazy far-right land. Yeah. He graduated from Columbia in 2006 and was enrolled in Yale and writing letters to the Yale newspaper before the end of the year. Uh, He sent one in October 2006. It's like not really particularly noteworthy, um, it just attacks a bunch of articles that had recently been published in the paper as being too liberal. Interestingly, um, in the same paper, there's another student writing to comment on a homophobic prank that was played on the Yale campus anonymously. Now, there's nothing connecting it to Coaston, um, but there's something like very alt-right about the prank. It's like anonymous emails were sent to students en masse during Pride Week, uh. which included the lines, What are you coming out as today? Are you a racist? Embrace the hate. A homophobe? So is Jesus. A male chauvinist? A Nazi? There's no shame in being who you are. Just remember admitting it doesn't make it right. Um, There are also posters put up around campus, ostensibly by the National Organization to Gain Acceptance for Your Sins, the acronym of which spells no gays. (laughs) Now this particular incident, it's too moralizing. He is not a moralist, and this incident is too moralizing for me to think it's him but i think it it like highlights that on the campus at the time there was like these undercurrents of the same kind of like playful but threatening aggression right that coaston is just like mastered totally 
I mean, in the the alt right writ large, right? I mean, like that's why we associate like Pepe the Frog and like playful cartoon imagery with like some of the most virulent, racist, homophobic, misogynist things out there. Well, his time at Yale is actually the time period that I have like the best image of because several people that he was there with were kind enough to speak to me. So first is Stephen Smith. Smith's a professor of poli sci there at Yale. Um, he was Koston's thesis advisor. Wow, so he probably had a pretty good look at him. Can you hear some of this? Yeah. You seem to know a lot of, more about him than I do, but but what can I tell? What can I tell you? Maybe maybe to start off with, you could just tell me about um your experiences with Alamaru, how you met him, and your impressions of him. Uh, he entered our graduate program. I can't tell you what year exactly. I'm gu- I'm guessing it was you know. I don't know, like 2006, maybe 2005, and was interested in ancient political philosophy uh, in particular. He was always sort of shaped by Nietzsche in, in, some, in some significant way. Mm-hmm. That was also vaguely connected with Leo Strauss uh, and Plato. Uh, he also, I mean, this this would tie into the uh, maybe the Bronze Age stuff. Uh, Costin always had an interest in sort of, I would call it kind of deep anthropology, kind of warrior society. He was interested in uh, the themes of kind of warrior aristocracies. I mean, that to give, in a way, more sort of anthropological uh, support to Nietzsche's ideas and so on. Those, those were some of the things he, he was interested in. Those were sort of the um, what the, the boundary posts of his sort of intellectual world in, in a lot of ways. Aside from like his academic interests, what what were your impressions of him? He was always a mystery man on campus. Whether that was that's just his natural disposition, or whether it was something he just wanted to cultivate, he was always a kind of somebody who cultivated an aura of kind of maybe sort of secrecy. Costin was not close to many people when he was at Yale, but he had something like a friendship with uh, another student named David LeBeau, who is a, he's pretty, he's pretty lefty actually now. Um, He's actually who turned me on to Wendy Brown and his essay, Trumpism and the Dialectic of Neoliberal Reason, though that sounds super boring, is just like, just like blew my mind. It's really good. And it's, it was like an early inspiration for this podcast. Okay. Um, LeBeau is the Associate Director and Assistant Senior Instructional Professor in Law, Letters, and Society at the University of Chicago. Just a little note here. Again, I don't want to get too deep into Costin's philosophy right now, but uh, LeBeau lumps Costin in with the alt-right. And Kostin himself has disavowed the term as meaningless and misleading, but he only started doing that after the Unite the Right rally. Right. Um, before that, <laughs> he did things like tweet, hashtag we are the alt-right. Oh. So who knows? Uh, if Kostin's worried about people misrepresenting him, uh, he shouldn't be such a fucking weirdo about what he wants. He <laughs> yeah. needs all that, you know? So whatever, who cares? Anyway, here's LeBeau. From the get-go... Costin was all right. He was always um, out to, to provoke, and it was always towing a line between the ridiculous and the ominous. Um, and you could never tell what was a joke and what wasn't a joke. 
and you could never tell if he was saying the things just to upset people or whether there was something that he actually believed in, um, which is, I mean, it's perfectly all right. And this is already yeah. from the very beginning, 2006. So I had, for the most part, um, a very playful relationship with him. So, I mean, some of his playful jokes are there was some email about our dental coverage as graduate students, and he wrote on this one about dental coverage. For those interested, my cousin Denko runs Denko Magnusergorsk Dental Emporium. He made good dental work in White Van at Grand Avenue and East Street in parking lot outside plumbing supply stores. You forward me small price of 100 He do work, steel teeth, gold teeth, anything you want. It's, uh, it's almost um, it's almost a uh, Borat. Yeah. So there's that. Um, oh, and then his other jokes are things like this. He he sends an email to the list looking for an apartment sublet, and he says, if anyone knows anything about someone renting out an apartment, this is 2008. Mm-hmm. Renting out a room or apartment next month, please let me know. The tenants and staff of the other building were conspiring against me, and I need a new place for a month. <laughs> uh, and I take this as I take this as him just joking. It's like all right. It was a joke where if it got a rise out of you, he won. Yeah. So the best thing to do was to play as play it as a joke. Um, that that made sense as a strategy 15 years ago. <laughs> At that point, there was a playfulness to it. Yeah. Um, I probably thought he was harmless because in any other world, he would be harmless. And without the rise of the alt-right, he would be harmless. And whether he, whether the fact that he already existed then was a sign that the alt-right was coming or whether it's just a accidental confluence of his own personality and broader phenomena, um, I, I don't know. That characterization kind of reminds me I mean, I hate to say it, but like of me and my friends growing up again, I, I know I said it before, but like we were kind of shit stirring types, you know, public prank artists and class clowns and kind of disruptive types. But I mean, I think our teachers and our parents, we had a lot of good influences, you know what I mean? That helped steer us in the right direction. But again, I feel, unfortunately, I feel a little level of like understanding and kindredness with this with what he just described there. Well, I mean, we're white dudes. Like, yeah. We are... Ensconced in privilege and all that. I mean, like, like when he writes, like, the kid's seats that underline his work, they're designed to appeal to people like you and me. Right. That's real. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong in admitting that appeal. Yeah. And, like, unpacking it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, Don't want to get swindled. It's funny you talk about, like, how it reminded you of being a kid and, like, the jokes you and your friends would play. LeBeau pointed out that this was right right around the time that Borat came out or just a little bit after Borat had come out. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh yeah, of course Bronze Age pervert's doing a fucking Borat thing. Right. (laughs) So, um, that's David LeBeau. A second one of Kostin's classmates spoke to me on the condition of anonymity, citing the, quote, speculative nature of this project. And, um, I can't what, blame a, Yeah, I mean I can't blame a serious academic for being super fucking skeptical of it. I'm offended. I'm give me their contact information. <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> I put on my Antifa sweater. So I will say that this person is uh, a professor of political science at a more or less prestigious mainstream university. Um, and uh, I wanted to include include his impressions of Kostin. What about um Elamaru's politics. 
pretty sensible. Amara's politics were from the fir- first, you know, extreme hard right. I can recall Alamaro used to work out in the Yale gym wearing an Israeli Defense Forces t-shirt, which he wore. I mean, the point of it was to provoke argument. Like any college campus, there are lots of critics of Israel and its relation to Palestinians, uh, in particular critics of the Israeli Defense Forces and the kind of uh, uneven sorts of wars that they wage against Palestinian populations, and so Kostin would work out in the gym in this Israeli Defense Force t-shirt and sort of relish the arguments that he got into. Was he very sociable? Um, did he keep to himself? Was he able to, like, he kept shut to himself. off? I had, you know, you would have, intercou- you'd have encounters with him in various kind of odd circumstances. Like I said, in the gym, I can remember discussing his Israeli Defense Forces t-shirt with him. Or I, you know, one time encountered him in the library where he had an enormous stack of CDs that he was converting to digital. And and having a good conversation about classical music with him, actually. He had a lot of cultural capital. A lot. Like, he just knew a lot about the history of ideas. He knew a lot about classical music. And he liked to show off that knowledge. You know, he seemed like a person at the start of graduate school who would be successful and have an academic career. Um, is there is there anything else that you think is like noteworthy about Eleanor? No, I mean, like I say, I thought he was a, I, you know, he's a guy that was intriguing in some ways, intriguingly well educated, basically, the kind of person that you wanted to talk to and could learn something from if you talked to. But then just extremely unpredictable and odd. Like, you never knew when he was putting on some kind of odd persona. None of that should surprise you. Um, but it's worth noting that, like I said, like you and I are white dudes. All, all these people I spoke to were white dudes. Kostin sees as at least potential equals. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't feel that way about women. More complicated thoughts about people of color. But even still, they all agreed that he was odd. The word creepy was used. Sure. I could see how that would come to mind. Here is the anonymous classmate. So I can recall this one incident. Probably David LeBeau was in this class as well. But we were in a class uh, with a professor uh, named Shayla Benabib. And she was uh, teaching actually some Carl Schmidt. Apart from Leo Strauss's use of Carl Schmidt, there are some prominent uh, contemporary left-wing Schmidtians who argue that kind of populism is a is a better and purer form of democracy. So, so these are known as left Schmidians. I was sitting in the seminar and kind of arguing on behalf of some left Schmidian ideas, really for the sake of argument. And then after class, Kostin uh, kind of came up to me on the street outside of that class and literally lectured me for about an hour, you know, over my objections that like, I was just kind of playing devil's advocate in class a little bit to tease out these ideas, yeah. but he was really uh, exercised about the uh, idiocy of that political position and argued that Carl Schmidt needs to be a philosopher of the hard right wing, which is what he was doing with him. Um, he also, you know, other philosophers he was into would have been like Joseph de Mest, who's a French monarchist, uh, Juan Donoso Cortez, a Spanish monarchist, certainly a right-winger, you know, maybe even 
a kind of uh, neo, you could even say maybe a neo-fascist, uh, certainly a, a strong critic of liberalism and democracy. And he, you know, told me at some point that he was living in his car. So it's like not the worst thing in the entire world to end up in those kind of circumstances. But it seemed discordant given his kind of totally right-wing monarchist, old-world, high-culture persona that he put on. So you you use the the phrase neo-fascist to describe him. May I ask why you chose that word? Was it because? Yeah, because of this association with Carl Schmitt in particular, uh, you know, who was a definitely enthusiastic Nazi fascist. As I say, there are kind of two wings of contemporary political theorists that invoke Carl Schmitt, one of which is this left populist Schmittianism, the other of which is uh, what I would characterize as kind of a neo-fascist, uh, hard right-wing uh, uh, philosophical position. He always also seemed very disappointed with the nature of the graduate education that he was getting. So he said he came to Yale to study with Stephen Smith and, and Brian Garston, who are there. I wouldn't really characterize them as right wing in any way. And Coaston seemed disappointed about that. And he was definitely disappointed about having to take classes with anybody else. Certainly didn't want to take classes about anything except the topics that he was particularly interested in. And then he kind of, then he kind of, uh, at some point just dropped off the face of the earth as far as I knew. So Smith, Costine's advisor, said he wasn't surprised that Costine was disappointed by Yale. Well, I think the direction he's gone tells you, you know, kind of where where he was trending at the time. There was one moment when he submitted his dissertation or a draft of his dissertation to me, and I was very upset with his talk about eugenics and so on. And it, it's it, the Yale graduate program is not the kind of place to give him much support. Brian and myself were probably the closest uh, to him as, as teachers, and yet, uh, you know, we we were both in some ways really, uh, frankly, sort of appalled at some of the directions he is, he's, he he was taking. But uh, you know, maybe it's a, also an example of the kind of Nietzschean, you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, and it. it provided him with grist for the mill that he's now churning out. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Quite frankly, you seem a little exhausted as we have this conversation. Like maybe this is a a difficult topic. I wanted to say he was a brilliant student Uh, in many ways, head and shoulders over many of the people uh, in our program. I thought very impressive intellectually. Uh, Well, his personality made it difficult. That's who, that's who he is. I mean, he was a, a brilliant person with a, with a uh, difficult personality in some ways, but um, somebody who, who, who I felt really had extraordinary talent. I wish it had been put in a different direction. I imagine that's something you probably don't see very often these days. I, I'm not, I couldn't peg it exactly when like eugenics died out, but I mean, it was not until, it was less than a hundred years ago. But this is what the advisor said is like, even then he's like, I didn't know if he was actually saying this stuff in earnest mm-hmm. or if he was just like trolling the liberal establishment. Yeah. I mean, in a way he's, he's like, 
pen, pen testing, penetration testing, you know what I mean? To kind of see, like, he's testing his advisors and his professors, you know, where, where's the hard lines here? What do you think of this? How would you grade me on this? And, of course, he runs into some, some pushback on that, and I'm sure that he intuitively read that as like uh oh they're they're rebuking my ideas because they're afraid of them maybe something along those lines i do want to point out too he used the word edgelord and like that's part of it too it's oh yeah fucking edgelord i mean it, it's what you said is true i mean it's this guy's like, barely 10 15 years older than us he's just as susceptible to these cultural pressures the celebrity the raw celebrity power that is bestowed upon these guys through the alt-right movement, you know? LeBeau, Costine's classmate, sort of summed up this unsettling aspect of his personality. We did our prospectuses for our dissertation, and for a couple of years in there, we would all be TA. So he was on campus, certainly for some of that time, over the next couple of years. But he was always an elusive figure. He would always be on campus and then not be on campus. It was often not clear if he lived there. There was rumors at one point that he lived in his car. Um, I mean, our joke was always that he was Dracula because he, he kept weird hours. He was he has a stick Romanian accent. He's um, there's something ominous and dangerous about him. He was out, he was a Dracula out of Central Casting. <laughs> I don't know if I want that being my quote, the Dracula one. <laughs> I prefer something more intellectual. But he didn't technically go off the records. So uh, technically. I'm doing it. Just doing my job. Sorry, Sorry, Professor. Being objective. <laughs> so the way grad school works is you do your coursework, and then you like do student teaching or some shit while you write your thesis. Mm -hmm. um, and then after you do your thesis, you go through a whole rigmarole with that, and you become right. I don't know the shit. I don't know if I don't know that shit either while you're asking Thank me. You. So if, in 2008, <laughs> a few months before he finished his Yale coursework, he joined the web forum, The Fora, under the handle Hyperion. Mm. Now, he would eventually change his uh, for username to Pandolf Iron Man, which was like a medieval Italian aristocrat or some shit like that, um, before settling on Bronze Age pervert. Weird. But uh, the Fora, this forum, is sort of 4chan's pretentious cousin. God, um, yeah. Like, they've got philosophy instead of memes, and there's, like, even a mechanism for members to engage in formal debates. Oh, wow. Um, it does have the same sense of humor as 4chan, though. If you misformat a search... Uh, an error message pops up, and to cycle past it, you have to click OKKK. Okay. Hilarious. Uh, so funny. Threads cover topics that range from high art to gutter racism. Mm. I want to say, Miles, his first post is really, it's like sweet in a way. How so? Quote, I ask everyone to forgive if my first post should be a disagreement with a long-standing member. End quote. And then he goes on to suggest that Plato's Republic should be consulted when they're building a list of potential alternatives to democracy. Mm. Sweet for Bronze Age pervert. Sure, yeah. Uh, this forum is where Costine developed his ideas, his project, and his persona. Uh, he was active on the fora for like seven years, so I didn't do like a really thorough accounting of everything he wrote, but I asked our infosec consultant to scrape the website so sweet if there are anybody you need help who really want to just pour through a fascist virtual cafe seven years worth of a fascist virtual cafe no he's gonna scrape it up till 2020 it's gonna be more than a decade god damn dm us well uh, i'll just hand it to you after we get it yeah come help um, us so this isn't a full accounting 
And we're going to dig into his actual ideas in the second episode, the next one. So I won't go into detail, um, but he's much less guarded in the forum than pretty much anywhere else. There's one post in particular I want to read in its entirety from September 2010. It might be the most earnest thing Kostin has ever written. Um, it It's misogynistic and bitter. I want to like, I don't want to downplay that. Content warning. But it really is a moment of weakness that's like touching in its way. It gives me a little hope that even Bronze Age pervert like is underneath it all, like kind of a, a fragile and salvageable soul. He writes, quote, What to do in this case? It's been years, and this rather pretty girl I know all of a sudden wrote me now and wants to meet me. She's been strangely insistent, but I believe it is dishonorable to meet her. The reason is this. At the time, I made advances which she resisted. True, she had a boyfriend, but I took this as an insult on her part. Now, after many years of absolutely no contact, she wants to meet. I interpret her writing me now in this way. I believe she's been letting herself get banged right and left by all manner of men other than me, and now she's decided to give me a try or something like that. I take this as deeply insulting and, and am considering not writing her back. But as I'm not a malicious man, and as right now I'm incredibly bored, I've returned some of her emails. She jumped on my first suggestion that we meet for a drink. Should I do this? End quote. There's just something about this that seems like really earnest. It's like it's like he developed his misogyny as a reaction to like getting re rejected by women as a way to protect himself. And here he is. He's in this situation where like a woman is like reaching out to him, and all he has to do is like let go of his misogyny, and it's like it's like chafing against him. I mean, it seems like one of his first inclinations is to turn to this forum and ask yeah. for advice as opposed to like taking a look inside yourself thinking about it for a day or two i don't know hey go to reddit talk to our relationship advice make a post I'm sure, sure okay. yeah. this is a neo-nazi web forum that he's exactly talking about this in so yeah and the rest of the thread like like that just devolves into this like bro-y posturing like everyone's like super eager to show that they think it's super gay to talk about being into girls like wow so the one opportunity he takes to like, you know, open up, talk about his feelings or something like that, you know, be a little bit vulnerable. And these guys just fucking dogpile him. And then it's like, you can hear his accent getting thicker. He says, uh, he responds to the advice, uh, quote, I'm not looking for a wife. I consider myself a seducer and corrupter of pretty girls. And it is precisely my failure at bagging her while she still had BF. That is the gall of it. I make sport of such things since unattached girls are not challenging enough. End quote. Okay, so then the next couple of years, Kostin's just gone. But then he shows back up in 2017, sending emails gloating about Donald Trump's victory to his former classmates. He also did contact me after the election on Facebook. He was deactivated. He briefly reactivated his account and sent me a message <clears throat> January 1st, 2017. He's deactivated again, but I remember definitively the um, the icon for his Facebook page was the was Pepe, and it just said Happy New Year, Trump is prez, um, and then he then he disappeared again, and I didn't respond. So the next couple of years, Costin published a handful of essays under his real name, uh, including a couple for the far right magazine Talkies Mag in 2016 and 17. Uh, and that, that's where Richard Spencer made some of his bones that way too, right? Mm -hmm. For Talkies Mag. He left there to found the alt-right. Right. the name of the magazine he founded after leaving that. 
the author's bios for Talkies Mag says that Costine at this time period in 2016-17 is, quote, currently traveling in Europe and writing a book about the lives of tyrants in ancient Greece and Renaissance Italy, end quote. At the same time, Bronze Age Pervert was building a following on Twitter. Hilariously, when he started his account in March 2017, Costine described himself in the Bronze Age Pervert user bio as, quote, step barbarian, nationalist, fascist, nudist bodybuilder, end quote. Okay. Um, I read somewhere, I think it was a political article. It's a lot of information there, man. You sure you don't want to, like, edit that profile a little bit? Oh, yeah, he did. Just going to bear it all, huh? Yeah. Quite literally. So I read somewhere that Charlottesville was supposed to be like a coming out party for the far right to sort of bring fascism and white supremacy inside the Overton window to sort of like make it okay to be a Nazi in the way that like Occupy made it okay to be a socialist. Um, Unite the Right happened August 11th and 12th, 2017. And the Wayback Machine at the Internet Archive caught a snapshot of his Twitter profile a week later, August 18th, when he still identified as a fascist and a nationalist. But something changed as the fallout from the rally became clear because the next snapshot on November 2nd, he sort of put his fig leaf back on. He no longer identified as a fascist (laughs) or a nationalist. And he downgraded himself to an aspiring nudist bodybuilder. Oh, well, way to hide it, bud. Right? (laughs) All Um, out the window. Still, in the period after Charlottesville, Costein finally realized success. His book about the lives of tyrants never materialized, but... On June 6, 2018, Bronze Age Mindset was published on Amazon, um, and it has made a splash. The Dark Enlightenment thinker Curtis Yarvin, a.k.a. Mensch's Bug name, dropped him to a Vox journalist for an article that was published less than a week before the book dropped. After the publication, Yarvin further recommended the book to Michael Anton, author of The Flight 93 Election. Um, and former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. Anton wrote this 5,000-word review for the Claremont Review of Books. There's that name drop by Powerline. I mentioned up at the front end, and it just makes me wonder how many other like minor conservative outlets sort of gave it air early on. Right. Minnesota State Senator Roger Chamberlain is a fan, and Politico reported that the Trump White House was full of staffers who read the book and pointed out that one of Matt Gates' speechwriters was also a fan. The book has maintained its popularity, and Pervert has continued to develop his project and build a following. He was banned by Twitter in August last year, but moved to Telegram, where he currently has more than 17,000 followers. Um, he's also begun to write long-form essays for extremist outlets, which I won't name here, but one of those outlets hosted a three-essay symposium on his work, sort of following the lead of the Claremont Institute, which publishes the Claremont Review of Books, which once published a six-essay symposium on Bronze Age mindset. Now this, And I think it's hard for people to really kind of like imagine just how influential this book has been to uh-huh. this movement, you know? Yeah. So there's a bit of back and forth here because Anton writes the review, Pervert writes back to him, and then Anton responds to the response. Okay. And this is what Anton says. BAP is short for Bronze Age Pervert. Quote, What of those readers who don't get the joke? How might they interpret these and other BAPian declamations? Or, more to the point, what might they do? At a prosaic level, I suppose I have in mind the following. I wonder if BAP has read or seen the film version of The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. In it, an inspiring, vaguely Nietzschean, and not-so-vaguely fascist, teacher casts a spell over a number of impressionable girls. One of them takes quite literally to Miss Brody's exhortation to fight in the Spanish Civil War, runs off to Spain, and is killed. What would Bap say, or think, or feel, if a reader not so finely tuned to irony took up his exhortations? End quote. So Anton wrote this in 2019, and 
Then we fast forward to December 2021, when the aggrieved white dude Lyndon McLeod killed five people in the Denver metro before being shot and killed by a suburban police officer. I don't know who the first person to discover it was, but Luke Turner on Twitter posted a thread of McLeod's tweets about Bronze Age mindset. McLeod, mm-hmm. writing in the margins of the book, praises the book and highlights several passages. In one, he rewrote a passage from the book, one of many that sort of glorifies sudden eruptions of destructive, even literally suicidal, violence by men. The passage reads, quote, It calls on us to allow ourselves to be possessed by it and to wage war on its behalf against its enemies. It being this, like, masculine willpower. Mm -hmm. It's above and beyond all things, I guess. One of the things I'm confident saying about Kostin is that his philosophy is, to paraphrase Wendy Brown, unrational without being irrational. He really privileges intuition and instinct as a way of knowing truth. So, like, next episode, we're going to dig into that But his thoughts, like his philosophy, is for him kind of a way of refining and understanding his instinct, which he seems to think is the true source of knowledge about truth or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So what I mean is that you can't really separate his politics or his philosophy or his project from his instincts, like the feelings he has about himself and about the world and about his place in it. And like what we're going to talk about next time, his life story highlights some of the contradictions in his thinking. Because I've been saying he's really smart, and he is, but, like, there are big problems with the sure. things that he writes. But we'll get to that. I just want to end by paraphrasing, like, the brilliant Todd Snyder um, in one of his admittedly less brilliant songs, but it's still very appropriate. Bronze Age Pervert's real name isn't even Bronze Age Pervert. He's a skinny public high school kid from Massachusetts, not some monster from out of this world. Like a lot of other skinny public high school kids, he was sick of getting beaten up by the point guard all week only to go out on the weekend and watch the quarterback get all the girls. So, he became a fascist, man. Damn. Damn. You know, every ten years or so, our country and some other little country, we start firing all of our newest weapons at each other. For some reason or another, right or wrong, like it or not, it happens. And when it happens, people get shot. And when people get shot, they show that on TV a lot. Every night at 6 o'clock, you don't have to be 18 to see that. You don't even have to be in first grade. First grade, where they teach the kid to pride, they tell him he'll need to thrive. In a world where they say that only the strong will survive. So he's taught the art of more, to compare to, and to keep score. Monday through Friday while he stares at the floor Until Sunday they make him go to school once more Only this time they make him wear a suit and a tie And listen to some guy who claims to know where people go when they die Tell him that only the meek are gonna inherit the earth Well, shit By this time, how could anybody know what anything is worth? Now, brothers and sisters, I'm only one guy And I don't even know the words to that song, Louie Louie well, I can tell you right now without batting an eye that the next time some latchkey kid goes wrong, it ain't gonna be because of something that some rapper said in his song. And I ain't trying to preach to you either. I'm just trying to sing to you too. String a few words together. Hey, kid, let's get it on.
Well, that's our show. Just want to say thanks for listening. We're going to wrap up next time with a look at at Costine's ideas and his project. Uh, put a ton of time and effort and energy into it. It's been a lot of fun to watch it come together. Thanks to everyone who took the time to talk to us. Thanks to Miles for all his hard work on this. And thanks to you, our listeners, and especially our uh, our Patreon supporters. Uh, we really appreciate the boost that we get. Just that morale boost from seeing that little bit of money coming in. Uh, it's not a ton, but it means so much to us, I cannot say. Have a good one. Our bumper music this week was Harriet Tubman and Bella Chow from the Minneapolis Musicians Wooden Shoe Ramblers in their album In the Runes They've Left Us Will Plant Gardens Still. The last song of the bumper music was Todd Snyder doing Ballad of the Kingsmen. Our theme song is The Shit Ceausescu Left Us by Dan Carroll with Wesley Mitchell on drums. You can find us on Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN and on Patreon at patreon.com slash unbalanced MN. Have a good one. Oh